0: Hey, good afternoon. We are here at ACR 23 in San Diego. I'm joined by a good friend and master of rheumatology and infectious disease, Dr. Kevin Winthrop from Oregon Health Science Center in Portland. Uh, Kevin uh, is always active at these meetings, always teaching us. I know that you have a bunch of sessions and whatnot. I wanted to corner you on things that rheumatologists are concerned about. Sure. And, uh, And in the aftermath of COVID, um, are we still concerned by COVID? So there are reports yeah. that happened right after COVID and now about the vaccine itself causing autoimmune disease. What's your take on that? Uh, well, I think I told you about
1: my experience with uh, gout, right? <laughs> I got my vaccine, uh, my toe kind of hurt. This is my first vaccine. And then the next day I had the biggest gout attack uh, ever, or my my first one. And uh, it was quite impressive. So there, there's no question there's a innate and other uh, you know, parts of your immune system are are uh, stimulated with these vaccines. So, I I think it makes sense that someone who has an underlying uh, inflammatory condition or maybe an incipient one could could see a flare or something like that. I will say that most of the most of that type of information is in the form of case reports or case series. Right. Uh, there are some population-based data looks at those questions, where where generally you don't really see an increased risk of. Uh, you know, new onset autoimmune disease, um, or even flares of autoimmune disease. But again, I, I do believe it happens. I, I mean, I guess it happened to me with my gout. But I, I do think there's there's enough case reports that you do you do see something like that. Um, I mean, certainly even with the vaccine uh, or with natural infection, rather, right. you see similar reports. Right. You see, you know, increased risk of seizures, diabetes. I mean, there's all these very small increased risks that you see with natural infection. I don't think it would be um, unusual to see something similar with with a fake infection, a vaccine. Right, right. So to trigger some similar type of adverse events, uh, albeit in a much lower risk than the natural infestation, I and mean, that's usually what we're trying to do, prevent so, these things.
0: So I've seen uh, a lot of good reports about the biology, what what the the spike protein is doing, and, and for that matter, maybe even the vaccine, and it, it is, does excite the immune response. It does yeah, activate the absolutely. inflammasome, yeah. and 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 that might, as you say, might be the trigger to start the fire. And goes to that old theory that I think we had as as we were medical students that you know infection can make immune disease worse, and yeah. and just by the evil humors that it produces. So it's not surprising that vaccination would lead to more events. What do you think about the concept of of actual infection leading to a, a, a surge in autoimmune disease my take on that is that i think that during the covid pandemic nobody got seen and after yeah. the COVID pandemic everybody's back to being seen so is right. it is this enhanced uh, surveillance, maybe, that's picking up more cases that shows up in these reports. But I, don't, I, I personally don't think I'm seeing more autoimmune disease because of, of COVID.
1: Yeah, so, you know, the onset of new autoimmune disease, uh, like I said, the, the population-based looks I've seen at that with both natural infection and vaccine, you know, haven't really shown any right. increased risk. Um, but, uh, boy, I mean, it, it doesn't preclude the idea that it happens on an individual Case by case basis, which sometimes you know you don't see something in a big population-based study, but you might have individual cases where that's the issue. I mean, certainly we know infection in general can trigger autoimmune diseases. I mean, this is well established. Uh, so I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it does occur. For some people so.
0: all right so lastly um you know we're now on the tail end the back end a different phase of a, what's going to be a long-lasting infection called covid19 um and we obviously said early on get the vaccine that's going to be important in your patients yeah. surprisingly the patients with autoimmune disease did pretty well in spite of getting infected and whatnot and the vaccination clearly seemed to work yeah but now most people have of the opinion this uh you know the next phase of COVID is the is the new cold and nothing more yeah is it worth autoimmune patients getting the vaccine the new the the the, the next iteration i just got it before i came to the meeting yeah me too i just got mine and no gout this yeah. time
1: no gout. I, I went i actually got the different vaccine i got the novavax vaccine oh yeah really? protein adjuvenated vaccine that's different from the mrna vaccine the reason i did that is i think they all work similarly um and they all have similar safety profiles, but I've been, the last mRNA vaccine guy here, I had like really impressive uh, lymphadenopathy in really? my armpit for, yeah, here I am with all these problems, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I decided <laughs> I, I, was getting, that. I was going to get a different vaccine this time. It worked out fine. So, I mean, I think for people who've had difficulty with mRNA vaccines before, that's, a, that's right, an right. option. Right. Um, but, but I think they're all good vaccines and your question is really good and, and it kind of goes back to something you said too a minute ago. Um, the, it's hard to study the, both the effectiveness of the vaccines as well as uh, safety or kind of this question of new autoimmune disease, et cetera, because people have multiple exposures at this point, both through natural infection and through vaccines. So some of people have you know, two, three COVID experiences, and then they've had two or three vaccines. You know, They've had six, seven, eight exposures at this point. So it makes it complicated to study some of these questions that you're asking right right that being said it makes it raises the question you just asked like is it worth getting another vaccine um and uh, to be honest i think for a lot of people who are younger or not you know don't have risk factors they've already been exposed four or five times i i don't know that you're gaining much with an additional vaccine at this point other than you know, the short-term, three-month uh, you know, increase in your neutralizing titers, and then they go back down to where they were, you know, three or four months ago. So um, so there may not be a lot of benefit for, for those types of people. Now, I think for your patients, uh, it depends who they are. I mean, certainly subsets of them have not either had... I, I mean, I have patients who haven't had COVID before. It's hard to believe. I, me neither. I have not, and yeah. I've been tested many it, times. <laughs> So anyway, it, it, it's there are those people out there, so they are more naive that way um, immunologically, and I think also there are patients that you know have had suboptimal exposure to the vaccine, or suboptimal responses to the vaccine. I mean, we know that B cell depletion therapy. I mean, there's there's other people on TAC and MMF. I mean, there's groups of people that are out there that just probably are are under under protected, and so I mean for those people. If we had a monoclonal preventive antibody, which hopefully we'll have soon, that's that would be a good option. And for those people also, I think booster is a good option too. Now the frequency of those boosters, I don't know. I mean we've kind of slipped in this idea of annual boosters for the general population, right. which I, you know, myself and I, I have a lot of colleagues, I'm not sure, a lot of us don't think that's necessarily the right, right. answer. Um, for subsets of people who are immunosuppressed who had prior problems mounting responses. Maybe maybe that is the answer, at least temporarily. Right. Um, but you know you can't vaccinate someone every three months or every six months. I mean this right. is and if you look at the data, the longer you wait between the vaccines, the better they work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know CDC says, you know, oh if it was two months ago you can get your vaccine, but I mean
0: that's a little early. Right. Like, and the I, data is weak yeah, at best. I would wait so,
1: six to twelve months, I mean if I was immune things like that. So um. I- anyway, I, I think they had the long answer, it was way too long an answer, The lo- is to your question, yes, there are subgroups of people that should continue to be vaccinated, but we probably don't need to vaccinate at such short intervals.
0: Right, so uh, it is... I mean, what what do vaccines do? They reduce the risk. This is, a, this is you're playing the odds, and yeah. and in high risk patients, the, the, that seems like it's a it's a worthwhile thing. I think that we know who our low risk patients are, and that we can be more conservative with them. But I, I think this is very helpful advice. So. Kevin, always wonderful. Yeah. Let's, hey, do, let's uh, do it again next year. Co-
1: come to our uh, thing tomorrow. Len Calvarez okay. and I and Cassie and Al Kim. There's a session on uh, what? Several other people. Yeah, it's a uh CME, you know, Vindico, CME on COVID. Uh, where we are today uh, with vaccine, monoclonal antibody development, and kind of what the future holds that way.
0: So oh, good. Powerhouse faculty.
1: Yeah, yeah. We got some good, there's good stuff in the pipeline. Yeah. So I think it'll be even more of a cold for people in the future. So. All right, excellent, yeah. that'll be Tuesday
0: afternoon. Yeah, you got All it. Right. Yeah, thank All you. All right, be there. Cool.
2: Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm in San Diego at the American College of Rheumatology Conference 2023. And I have with me um, Jin Chu, and she's from the NIH. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So I was very captivated by your abstract which um, was presented at this meeting, and it has to do with the use of gonadotropin agonists in order to preserve fertility. Could you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in this field and what the abstract
3: shows? Absolutely. So what, you know, what prompted this study is really because uh, there's very limited data on the use of GnRHA, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone Agnes for ovarian preservation um, for you know female patients receiving Cytoxin. And there was uh, conflicting recommendations from us and our OBGYN cohort. We were referring all our patients over to them to get Lupron prior to you know giving IV Cytoxin and they were you know coming back saying, I don't know if this really does anything. So we first started a meta-analysis and um, we looked at all the rheumatic patients receiving IV cytoxin and uh, Lupron, and we found that Lupron does help with um, ovarian preservation in our meta-analysis, which we published. And then after the meta-analysis, we ended up looking at our own uh, lupus cohort. So we did a retrospective study, and that's what this abstract uh, really uh, tells us is the retrospective study that we did. And it includes um, a chart review and a questionnaire of 100 patients. Um, So one group of the patient only had cytoxin, um, group two had cytoxin and GNRHA, and group three were just controls. Um, and we did a chart review in terms of looking at their demographic, demographic info, information, their disease accrual, um, disease activity, and also how much cumulative cytoxin dose that they received. Um, after we looked at all of that, we also looked at, um, we also sent out the patients a questionnaire, which asked some questions about, you know, how much, um, in terms of their fertility status, um, pre and post ex- exposure, length of menses, regularity, um, infertility, and also um, pregnancy outcome. And what we found was that in group one, which is cytoxin only, there was a higher risk of um, premature ovarian insufficiency, which we measured or defined as uh, menopause before the age of 40. So it was 37% compared to group two, which had cytoxin plus GnRHA, which was only at 20% compared to the control group, which were only lupus patients with no cytoxin exposure. In addition to that, we found that length of menses for both group one, cytoxin only, in group two, cytoxin plus GnRHA, length of menses decrease pre and post cytoxin exposure. So this is very pre- preliminary data. There's only about 100 um, subjects. Um, and uh, I did mention earlier, but in the demographics, the patients who were in group one were a little bit older compared to the patients in group two, which um, also, you know, when they're exposed to cytoxin at an older age, there's, you know, more damage. And also because the group two is a little bit younger, about 12 of them have not turned So we need to go back and finish collecting data. So it's preliminary. We need to finish collecting data and hopefully to expand the the group and then also collect information such as AMH levels, FSH, Estorol. So we need to do more work, but currently our preliminary data does show that um, giving GnRHA concurrently with Cytoxin helps with ovarian preservation, which supports our meta-analysis that we did. No, that's
2: that's awesome. And when she says older, it's not that much older. It's not my age, actually. It's like twenty-seven years old versus twenty-four years old. So it's not like you know people who are like in their mid-thirties or even forties. No, these are still young young ladies, really. I am um, so glad you did the study. And the reason why is because recently I had a patient that I saw. I've been trying to get her a gonadotropin agonist with her cyclophosphamide. She has lupus nephritis. She wanted to have babies, and she was like 25, 26. They refuse. They just won't pay for that. And you know, this is going to give us more data, um, so that way we might be able to get insurance to approve this. I know, you know. They would like to have something like FDA approved in that way they would allow us to use it. But the reality is to, to get something FDA approved is kind of tough when we know that there's like nice meta-analysis, nice little data like this. So what's your future plans? You're, you said that you were going to do
3: more of a validation study, AMH and... Right, exactly, expand the cohort, finish collecting data, um, and then hopefully, you know, come up with a manuscript from this protocol Um, And then the other thing we wanted to look into is best practice use for Lupron because right now Lupron is not um, recommended for after one year of use. And sometimes we're giving cytoxin, you know, especially in an IH protocol, maybe over one year. And there's, you know, irreversible bone damage that can happen. So we're also looking at best practice use for Lupron since we're recommending it.
2: That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, June. I really appreciate our viewers watching us. Follow me on Twitter at KDAO2011. Thank you.
4: Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. Abstract number 0723 by Dr. Deng and colleagues from China caught my attention during the plenary sessions on Monday, and I'm here to talk about their study. The objectives of their study were to investigate the pathogenesis of SLE pulmonary arterial hypertension and identify new biomarkers that could aid in the diagnosis or aid in developing new novel therapeutic targets for SLE-PAH. So this basic science study had three parts. First, they performed whole exome sequencing on peripheral blood samples of 150 patients with SLE-PAH, then conducted a genome-wide association study. Next, they performed in vitro intervention experiments on human pulmonary endothelial cells. And lastly, the group established SLE-PAH mouse models with lupus phenotypes and increased mean pulmonary arterial, arterial pressure levels. So, what did the results show? Well, using the WES and the GWAS, they identified the tumor necrosis factor receptor associated factor V or TRAF5 as a susceptible gene in SLEPAH. Through transcriptional analysis, they found a significant reduction in TRAF5 expression in the peripheral blood of SLEPAH patients. So simply put, lack of TRAF5 triggers the pathophysiology of SLEPH, according to their findings. Now, based on the flow cytometry analysis of human pulmonary endothelial cells, there was a significant increase in early apoptotic cells and loss of migratory ability of these cells um, following TRAF5 knockdown and injection of a TRAF5 overexpression in the mouse model's attenuated PAH symptoms. Now, SLE-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension may not be as common as the other pulmonary manifestations of SLE, but once diagnosed, it confers significant morbidity and mortality. So what are the implications of this study? Well, biomarkers such as TRAF 5 will help further the understanding of SLEPAH pathogenesis with potential utility as a diagnostic tool or may even pave the way for novel therapeutic targets for SLEPAH. I'm looking forward to future findings of this study. Follow me on Exit Room Rampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you.
5: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is uh, Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now at uh, Sunny San Diego uh, for ACR Conference 2023. Uh, Today, uh, there have been uh, plenty of uh, abstract sessions happening in the conference. Uh, And uh, one uh, abstract that caught my eye uh, was presented uh, in the uh, SLE uh, treatment session. Uh, And this uh, is an abstract uh, number 078. Uh, and today, um, I've been joined by uh, the presenter of the abstracts, Dr. Amit Saxena. Uh, hello, Amit. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. That's good. And congratulations uh, for your presentation today. Thanks, I appreciate it. Good. Um, so, what we'll do, um, we're just going to ask about uh, the background
6: of the study and what motivated you to look into this matter. Yeah. So, you know, we all know that steroids, glucocorticoids are necessary for treatment for lupus nephritis. And it's important to treat nephritis aggressively because there's been a lot of studies that show that early responses to treatments are associated with long-term better prognosis. Uh, And so kind of classically, we used to use uh, higher doses of uh, glucocorticoids up front, usually one milligram per kilogram per day of a prednisone equivalent. But more recently, there have been several clinical trials that have utilized lower doses of those steroids, uh, more in the order of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day. And there was one very small open-label study uh, that, that looked at this and did show an equivalence in renal response rates. But generally, there hadn't been a ton of big studies to really compare those two doses. And so really all I did was to look back at some of these more recent studies that uh, utilize some of these lower doses of glucocorticoids and compare the outcomes in those studies relative to the outcomes that we saw in some of the older studies that we used a higher dose of steroids. Okay, um, so you were looking uh, in terms of uh,
5: pool analysis of data from four randomized control trials, were you? Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. And we just used the
6: published data from that. That's good. Um, could, would you like to um, summarize your main results? Yeah. So the main thing was that the overall responses, the renal responses were similar in the groups that used the high and the low doses of glucocorticoids. And so we had you know, over 300 patients and over 500 patients in those two groups. Uh, and we looked at several different ways to look at the outcomes. Uh, The the complete renal response definitions were different between these studies, but they all reported one where at least you were trying to get to a UPCR of less than 0.5. And in those uh, uh, CRR 0.5 numbers, again, there was no statistical significance between the high and the low dose groups. And then I also just looked at the, uh, the overall ability to achieve a UPCR less than 0.5 without any other definitions. And in that group too, there was no significant difference between those high and the low groups. And then I think the main part that kind of pushed this a little bit over the edge is that the, the rates of the significant or severe adverse effects were um, were higher in the groups in the in those patients that received the higher dose of the steroids. And so, both the overall SAEs and also the ones related to infections, the infection SAEs, were statistically significantly higher in the in those patients in the from the groups that got the higher doses of steroids. And
5: uh, how do you account for the heterogeneity in terms of the trial? Because they're all four different
6: trials, is yeah, it? Yeah, that's probably the number one limitation. Is that there's going to be some variability here, and so not all of the studies uh, had the exact same inclusion and exclusion criteria. But somewhat interestingly, and again, you can't really take too much out of this, but those lower dose uh, glucocorticoid groups actually had some factors that made it seem like it might be harder to achieve uh, a a UPCR of less than 0.5 or or a renal response rate. So some of those studies included patients that needed to have higher uh, UPCRs at the baseline. There were some stricter uh, steroid criteria for tapering afterwards. And the high dose groups also, uh, utilized a higher dose of mycophenolate as part of their standard of care regimen. Oh, so this is really fantastic news because of uh, you know after using
5: you know remission induction with uh, some IV metal spread and then when you're trying to initiate someone with steroid you can actually use like you know lower dose and it's sort of comparable efficacy compared to the higher dose uh, with fewer side effects so I think this is really good news for in you know, our patients so I'm just wondering uh, in terms of um, uh, the, you know the you know where, where,
6: where do you go for, for next uh, in terms of the studies any anything that you're planning you know I think if we can get more data there are are some unpublished data from trials that have been done and so if we can get some of that data and add that it will just increase more power um, but uh, hopefully the patients themselves are si- similar enough uh, that we can kind of say that you know even though we're not looking at the patient level data that we can still use say that these are comparable groups and kind of make this claim uh, you know we were just looking at the arms where patients were receiving the standard of care not the experimental arms obviously so that we can compare them for that reason too. Yeah, it's got one last final
5: uh, question before we finish. Um, so we're now saying like, you know, so it's May be possible like, to start someone on a lower dose steroid, and I'm just thinking in terms of like tapering later on. Do you think, you know, apart from you know the endpoints such as renal response, do you think like you know requirement of low dose prednisolone should be a target in the next trials and 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 clinical like, practice? What, what do you think about that? Yeah,
6: I think so. Um, you know, one of the things that also kind of is important to remember is these trials. The low dose steroid trials did use the IV pulse in the in the outset, uh, so that could be part of the reason why you're able to get away with lower doses after. But also that would hopefully entail the ability to use some of those uh, shorter tapers or more aggressive tapers. And some of the studies did have more aggressive and less aggressive tapers. I didn't get into that too much because that part wasn't really published in the papers. Uh, but I think if we could get that information, we might be able to do more with that information, that data.
5: Oh, uh, thank you so much for you know joining us today, and you know we've learned so much. And congratulations again with the abstract. And um, yeah, so uh, t- thank you for listening to our interviews. Uh, and you can follow us at room now for more uh, coverage uh, for uh, in the conference content okay bye-bye
2: hi this is dr katherine dow i'm at the acr meeting in san diego 2023 and i have with me amanda green and she's amazing because she's been living with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis for many years thank you amanda for having me interview you and just coming here and letting me talk with you Thank you. I'm happy to share my
7: patient experience.
2: And, you know, Amanda, you have um, a poster here at the
7: ACR. Could you tell us a little bit about your story and how this poster came to be? Sure. Well, my story is I am a patient advocate with Lupus and Allied Diseases Association which is a nonprofit that amplifies lupus patient voices. And from my advocacy, I was able to share my patient story. And when they asked for patient perspective posters, I had a great idea, was a little creative, a little off the wall. I wasn't sure I would get accepted, but my patient poster is here at ACR 2023 and it's called Lupus with Slime. How increasing my range of motion and improving my quality of life with SLE with slime. Slime. So, slime is the stuff that my, like, kids
2: make and, like, glue and contact lens solution and
7: activator stuff. Did you make your own slime or did you buy your slime? I, I made my own slime, but it was a little too sticky. So, um, a friend of mine started a slime company. I started using her slime and, it, like, my favorite is cloud dough. It's not so sticky. I don't know if you know. There's different types of slime. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> If you're a slime expert, I'm an adult slimer, so if you're in the know, if you know, you know. If you don't, cloud or cloud dough is the best for beginners.
2: So tell me what you would do um, to loosen up your joints because, you know, it's about activity. Um, sometimes we send our patients to therapy in order to get them to be more active. Well,
7: during lockdown, and I, I, I was usually going to physical therapy, but during lockdown, I, my physical therapist couldn't touch me. And so I was starting to get frozen shoulder. And so I literally started kneading the slime with my hands. And then if you know how slime works, excuse me, while I stretch the mic, you know, soon I was doing tricks and flips and. That's amazing. I I don't know. You seem a little young. Maybe you don't remember slam dancing. (laughs) Slam dancing. (laughs) I was slime dancing. During the lockdown, I was finding I was moving because I knew that once I was moving my arms, my leg, my shoulders, my legs and knees wanted to join me, which, trust me, you're a rheumatologist. You understand what your patients go through. They do not want to move their legs. They do not. But if you find joy and something fun, I didn't realize I was moving. I didn't tell my body this is exercise.
2: I love that. So um, i having fun. One thing, Amanda, that I want you know our audience to know, because you know many of our audience members um, are healthcare providers, and we take care of patients who have arthritis, who have autoimmune diseases, but you know we don't really consider too much about like what it's like to be a patient. So, if you could tell them the top three things you wish all providers would know, what would they be? Top three top three. I know there's probably 1,000, but I'm just going to try and narrow it down to the well, top three.
7: I would ask your patient, how are you doing? And really, I know, you, I know you do, but when you say how are you doing, a lot of times you guys worry about our body and how our range of motion is doing. And sometimes our emotions are involved too. Our mental health is tied to our physical health. And... Worrying about, or worrying about that, being concerned with that, is part of my lupus journey. Was finding the balance between my physical health and my emotional health. Rheumatologists can also, for nutrition, you don't because if you count how, like your hand, I, I could show you my handful of medicine, but then how much food do I put in my mouth every day? A lot more than a handful. So I started considering what food I put into my body, and food is fuel. fuel food is medicine so if you, your patients aren't saying what else can I do to help my what else can if your patients aren't asking you maybe you can ask your patients how willing are you to collaborate with me would you be willing to try a change in diet would you be willing to try going to physical therapy once a week if that's just something to get you moving sometimes they just need an appointment and something if you find joy it's like hey do you find joy dancing is is your thing walking it's like if i've got a lupus walk coming up oh no i have to train for it shouldn't i be training for my lupus walk all year long technically the answer is yes i know that was a rhetorical question i know i know better and now i i was in training for acr and as soon as acr is over and it's november I'm in training for Lupus Awareness Month. Like, there's always going to be something to be in training for because I'm aging with lupus, which is something that I don't know if you're studying or not. I know we're, uh, we're studying, you know, pediatric lupus, which is all very important, but aging with lupus because now the treatments are getting better and we're living longer. So one of the things I'd like, another, so my top three would be movement, you know, getting, mo- getting exercise, food is fuel, like, if your parent, patients aren't asking, maybe you could mention nutritionist or change in diet, and then mental and emotional health. I guess oh my God, there's, that was too That's I'm amazing. Not I have so many more, but I know. <laughs> so viewers,
2: she is the reason why we're here. She is the reason why we have to work very hard to take care of our patients. So I hope that you listen to your patients, um, talk to them understand what's most important for them. In clinical trials now, we're looking at patient-reported outcomes. It's really important because you can prescribe a bunch of things, but if you don't listen to what the patient needs, that's gonna be a problem. Thank you, Amanda, so much for being with me. Please follow me at kdow2011 on Twitter, and I hope you have a great rest of the meeting.
5: Hello, my name is uh, Yus Yusuf uh, I am from Leeds uh, I'm reporting for Room Now at sunny San Diego for the ACR 2023 uh, conference um, Today uh, I would like to uh, discuss and summarize about an abstract that I found uh, interesting, um, so the abstract number is uh, 0782 which was presented at the abstract session uh, in the SLE treatment uh, category So uh, with, the rep- uh, with advancement in uh, therapeutic uh, field in SLE um, the shift now uh, has uh, changed uh, from uh, treating uh, our patients with one medication to combination therapies and certainly this is true uh, for uh, people uh, with uh, lupus nephritis Um, so even the uh, recent uh, EULA recommendation also uh, mentioned that uh, there should be consideration uh, to use combination strategies either belimumab or for on top of mycophenylates and also hydroxychloroquine and glucocorticoids. Um, So these all stem from uh, the success of these trials. Um, So therefore, um, the question relies, uh, what if, if we compare data using higher dose of glucocorticoid steroid in this combination therapy compared to low dose uh, corticosteroids with this combination therapies. Um, so this is a post hoc analysis um, which uh, compare uh, the randomized control trial data of uh, two trials. Uh, one uh, uh, was the Arms trial uh, which um, look at if, uh, efficacy and safety data of uh, microphenolate with high dose uh, glucocorticoids uh, versus Aurora 1 uh, which uh, a trial that evaluated uh, vocosporin uh, plus low dose uh, uh, glucocorticoids um, so we have to be uh, in mi- uh, bear in mind that uh, these trials uh, were ten uh, years apart, uh, so the investigators could not control of uh, uh, everything uh, for comparison. Uh, for example, in terms of ethnicity, um, you know there are more uh, 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 black uh, and uh, Latino in the uh, Aurora trials, uh, whereas uh, there is more uh, Chinese um, uh, in the um, and, and South Asian uh, in the. Uh, trial. Uh, and also uh, there were more uh, patients were on hydroxychloroquine in the aurora vocosporine trial as well. Uh, saying this uh, in terms of our comparison wise um, the, the results show that uh, in patients with uh, low dose glucocorticoid plus voclosporin, uh, they achieve a significant um, reduction in proteinuria at the earlier time point at 3 months uh, and at 6 months uh, they, they were nearly uh, the same. Uh, and interestingly also that this appears uh, also uh, led to uh, less, uh, you know, s- uh, adverse events compared using high dose uh, glucocorticoid versus MMF. So um, this data, um, although there is some uh, limitation about not being able to control uh, all the confounding factors, uh, are really re- uh, assuring for our clinical practice, uh, and certainly uh, this, uh, um, you know, uh, cause uh, for for optimism that we need to change uh, how we treat our patient uh, presented with lupus nephritis. We really have to be uh, aggressive from the outset by using all this combination therapy uh, with less amount of steroids in order to uh, minimize uh, the risk of uh, organ damage and also damage from uh, steroid toxicity and also improve uh, outcomes of our uh, patients uh, with lupus. Uh, So I hope uh, you find my summary useful Uh, and uh, join us um, uh, uh, through Twitter, YouTube and other uh, social media channels uh, room now for more um, uh, coverage of the uh, conference. Uh, thank you for your attention.
0: Hey, Jack Kush from ACR23 in San Diego, uh, this morning at the plenary session, a surprising abstract. I go to the plenary session usually looking to see a few. And then the ones in between I'm really not interested in. I'm kind of half paying attention to, not taking any notes. And this one caught me by surprise. And I wasn't taking notes until about, um, it was about 20% into the presentation. Uh, It's abstract 2427. Again, a plenary presentation here at ACR. um, Given by Alexandra Ida Celia uh, and a bunch of other investigators who were working as part of the Accelerated Medicines Partnership, AMP, in RA and SLE, they had a presentation on degranulating PR3 myeloid cells characterizing proliferative lupus nephritis. So, you know, there's a lot wrong with lupus nephritis, meaning the things that we often measure really aren't all that predictive and helpful, like complement levels, like Uh, urinary protein. I mean, these are all markers of bad disease, but as serial assessments go, not quite so good. Predictive value go, not quite so good. Anyway, in this particular analysis that includes a number of investigators, including um, Andrea Fava and and Michelle Petrie from Hopkins, um, they did uh, analyses, multiplex histology, using serial immunohistochemistry of lupus biopsies from 11 lupus patients. Five of them had membranous disease, six of them had proliferative disease, and they were looking at a lot of different biomarkers. And when they did this, the immunohistochemistry, uh, chemistry, they showed these pictures of lupus tissue where it lit up like a wild night sky or incredible Christmas tree standing for PR3. PR3, isn't that a lab test? isn't that a characterization classification scheme for anca associated vasculitis? I have seen reports of PR3 associations with lupus nephritis suggesting it might be something there something you might want to pay attention to. This analysis I think was incredibly important. Number one, um, PR3 is expressed by neutrophils and other myeloid cells but the PR3 lighting up on histology was not with neutrophils, but in fact, probably with the myeloid cells. It was from within the glomeruli, but also in the interstitium, but more in the glomeruli. PR3 can be found in the urine as a biomarker and correlated with damage and the degree of nephritis or loss of renal function. Um, I think this is incredibly excited, exciting and gets added to that same story that... Fava and Petrie and others have talked about of urinary biomarkers predicting, being better predictors of lupus activity. Again, we talked about it before, IL-16, CD-63. And now we're going to add PR-3, detection in urine, as a potential biomarker for lupus. The data was exciting and really quite interesting. Uh, I think you'll be hearing more about this in the future. Uh, Tune in for more great content from ACR 23.
8: Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting for Room Now from ACR 2023. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you about an interesting abstract looking at uh, belimumab in uh, lupus patients. Uh, the abstract number is 2347. Uh, and this is a post-talk analysis of uh, five clinical trials. They pooled all the data and they wanted to see if there are racial or ethnic differences in uh, belimumab um, efficacy in these patients. Um, as you know, in clinical trials, there's under-representation sometimes of uh, minorities such as African-Americans or Hispanics, um, and that's uh, pooling all the data. Um, the thought was that it would help um, understand uh, how uh, the medication affects, um, in particular, uh, racial or ethnic groups. Um, so they had a total of... Um, uh, you know about two to three thousand patients, um, and they looked at not only lupus disease activity but also flares or like the uh, flare index, um, and approximately twenty percent uh, African Americans and like around twenty seven percent Hispanic patients in this cohort. Um, and what they found is, as we know, that belimumab did help with musculoskeletal and skin manifestations of lupus, um, particularly when they looked at the racial or ethnic differences. Um, I think uh, there were um, uh, a numerical increase uh, of uh, in African-Americans, but the, the, I guess the data was not statistically significant in terms of efficacy for African-Americans, because I think as we... No, the numbers are lower, Uh, so I think I wanted to bring this study up particularly uh, to bring out the issue of uh, enrollment in clinical trials, and there's been a lot of talks at ACR about it, um, and I think we as investigators and the clinical community need to specifically focus on increasing enrollment. Of different racial and ethnic groups in our uh, studies. Uh, with that, uh, signing off. Uh, this is Bella Meta. Um, you can follow us on Room Now or follow me on Twitter, Mehta. Thank you.
4: Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. I would like to talk about HPV vaccination and cervical cancer screening in rheumatic disease. Last year, the ACR came out with updated guidelines on vaccination. The ACIP recommends HPV vaccination for individuals aged 11 to 26 years old. For those aged 26 to 45 years, particularly those um, SLE and RA patients or those with rheumatic disease who have not been previously vaccinated, the ACIP recommends HPV vaccination based on shared decision-making, which brings me to discuss abstract number 1356 by the group of Dr. Amaya Small on the reproductive history and HPV vaccination awareness among women with SLE and RA. Their study is an interim analysis of their Rheumatology Women's Reproductive Health and Wellness Cohort, in whom participants responded to questions on rheumatology history, reproductive history, and HPV vaccination awareness. The group then compared reproductive history and HPV vaccination status and awareness among their patients with SLE and RA included in the cohort. Now, both groups were similarly likely to be sexually active with similar reporting times since their most recent pap smears, as well as abnormal pap smear results. But SLE patients were reported to have persistently abnormal pap smear results on follow-up than RA patients. And in addition, cervical cancer screening discussions by rheumatologists were done more on SLE than RA patients both groups were also similar in terms of HPV vaccination awareness and HPV vaccination status however 50% of the cohort members who were who were or are eligible for vaccination these are respondents less than 45 years old did not receive the HPV vaccine the major reason reported was simply because they were not offered the vaccine. Other reasons included they did not know it was important and they were were concerned of the vaccine side effects. Studies such as these make us realize the daunting role we rheumatologists have to play in the management of our patients. It opens our eyes to the reality that despite the evidence and recommendations, HPV vaccination rates are still low. And I think that is a global um, global finding. So that being said, this interim analysis highlights the importance of increasing HPV disease awareness and discussing vaccination and cervical cancer screening with our SLE and RA patients. Follow me on X at Roomarapa and tune into Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023.
2: Thank you. This is Dr. Katherine Dow. Thank you so much for joining me here at ACR 2023 in San Diego. And believe it or not, I was able to snatch the Ashira blazer. She is the invited lecturer for the Dubois lecture for lupus. Please welcome. Dr. Ashira Blazer.
9: Thank you so much for having me. You would not have had to find me. I would have very excited to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much for
2: joining me today. And could you tell me what
9: you're going to talk about? at the lecture? Yes, yeah. so I'll be talking about my work in APO1. So I've been looking at APO lipoprotein L1 polymorphisms, which are common genetic risk factors for kidney disease, progressive kidney disease in people of African ancestry. So there's actually an interplay between chronic inflammation and APO1 uh, pathogenesis, such that people who have this sort of inflammatory second hit are more likely to have the um, poor effect of carrying the two variants. So I'm looking at APO1 and its implications in lupus and then getting into some of the pathophysiology. That's
2: incredible. And I know you collaborated with researchers from Africa. Yes. Tell me about that
9: yes so this is a really exciting culmination of that work uh, i'm going to be talking about some of the pathogenesis in our um, african patients uh, in ghana as well as nigeria one of my collaborators dr day is here and we actually got to speak to the SLIC group yesterday about how we need to include um, countries in sub-saharan africa and afro-caribbean countries um, so that we can better understand this more sensitive population now apol
2: L one. That's a gene that um, gets upregulated, and then you have like pathogenesis. And it doesn't necessarily cause lupus nephritis, but right. once patients get lupus nephritis, this upregulation
9: actually can cause a lot worse prognosis. Exactly, exactly. So it's sort of interesting because in rheumatology, we think often the reason why someone gets in stage kidney disease when they get lupus nephritis is because there's this exuberant inflammatory response. This story is a little bit different because these APO1 polymorphisms actually increase the risk of kidney damage given that you have an inflammatory response. So it's not a risk factor for lupus, but if you have lupus kidney disease, it's a risk factor for progression.
2: Wow. So how did you get interested in this study?
9: Yeah, so I trained at NYU. I trained with Dr. Jill Bion. And um, she, if anyone knows Jill, she has I love Jill. a lot of personality, right? So um, we were sitting in a Grand Rounds talk about APO1 by Barry Friedman. And we're just sitting here whispering back and forth to each other. And we're like, I bet this is part of the reason for our patients. We could look at this today. And I didn't know anything about science. So she's like, I'll take you to the lab. We'll teach you how to PCR today. And so <laughs> I love that. And she did. She did. She taught me how to PCR that day and so I just started genotyping the patients and then understanding you know which patients had what sorts of phenotypes and um, and I wanted to look at the genetic risk factor in an environmentally different um, condition and so I was able to collaborate with uh, Dr. Day in Ghana and it's the rest is history. I love that absolutely so how does this play
2: because The ACR um, paper had interviewed you, Mm -hmm. and they also said, please don't use these genes as a way to discriminate against people. Yes. I mean, please explain that.
9: Yes. So I think, you know, one thing that keeps getting propagated is that race is somehow a proxy for genetic background right and we see that black and brown patients tend to have worse disease outcomes and often people are looking for a reason that's written in the genes now the legacy of structural racism in medicine is the reason why we do that and a lot of people don't understand that right Um, so what's important to understand is that 13 percent of people carry these variants and of those 20% 20% of them will have, you know, the risk of in-stage kidney disease, right? So it's a substantial number of people, but it's a small subset. So really what we're saying is people who have this genetic background have the risk factor, not African-American people are more likely to get in stage kidney disease or bad outcomes with lupus because they're just genetically predisposed to bad disease, right? Right. Right. And that's what we were taught before. But, I mean, you totally turned my world
2: and my perception upside mm-hmm. down, and I love you opening that world to me. Yeah. So um, little do people know that Dr. Blazer is also the co-chair of DEI yes. and has totally been amazing as a co-chair. Tell us about your initiatives, what you've done and
9: Yes, yes. This, um, this D. I. so this actually started off as a subcommittee of COIN. And I've been working with Dr. Irene Blanco. We've been co-chairs. It's been a labor of love. (laughs) But, um, you know, really, the ACR has been very intentional about understanding equity inclusion in rheumatology, being able to increase the numbers of rheumatologists of color so that we as a body represent the American public. And so, um, you know, we've been putting together this sort of new structure for committee where we're able to facilitate collaboration across the college so that everyone has a good DEI initiative. So it's really exciting. It's a very novel concept that, you know, the work of DEI is everybody's work. And um, yeah, and we'll be able to liaison with the board and hopefully facilitate implementation so that we can kickstart those initiatives. Absolutely. And a shout
2: out to Michelle on the ACR staff. Yes who has helped with this so much. Yes. Um, in the last few seconds, Asherah, is there anything you want our viewers to know? Yeah, Um.
9: I think the thing I want everyone to know is that we can learn so much from looking at the entire breadth of the human experience, right? Whether that is in, um, you know, understanding uh, disparities, understanding social determinants of health, or, you know, what happens when people are um, under stressful conditions and how that affects the immune system, or it's being able to identify novel genetic risk factors for disease and thinking about our pathogenesis pathogenesis differently. So I think um, representation, inclusivity is so important in rheumatology and in science. Absolutely.
2: And there you have it. This is Dr. Catherine Dow with Dr. Ashura Blazer, who's going to blaze the world. (laughs) And I love this woman. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's always so fun. Follow both of us on Twitter. Please.